0: Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, emerging perspectives on people, process, and profits. Your host is Olivia Parr-Rood. In today's fast-paced, high-tech global economy, the business landscape is constantly evolving. To be successful, companies must continually adapt as well as identify and exploit new opportunities. Now, here is the host of Quantum Business Insights, Olivia Parr-Rood. Hi, Olivia here. Welcome to Quantum Business Insights, where each show we explore new perspectives on the changing nature of business with thought leaders from around the world, and with a special emphasis on what I feel is our most valuable asset, our human capital. Today, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Dr. Annie McKee, author of How to Be Happy at Work, The Power of Purpose, Hope, and Friendship published last year by Harvard Business Review Press. Before we get started, let me tell you a little bit about Annie. Annie advises leaders around the globe. She's a senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, where she teaches and is director of the Penn CLO Executive Doctoral Program. Annie is a best-selling co-author of three books published by Harvard Business Review Press, including Primal Leadership, Resonant Leadership and Becoming a Resonant Leader, and you can get more details on the website for those books. And then she is a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review HBR.org website and is the sole author of Management, a Focus on Leaders by Pearson Prentice Hall. So, Annie, welcome to Quantum Business
1: Insights. Thank you so much, Olivia. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So this is truly a passion of mine. I'm actually working on a book um, about love at work. (laughs) So I'm taking it really into the weeds, and I love the idea of just being happy. And really, I think when we tap into our power, our hope, and have a, a community of friends at work, everybody thrives. So let me ask you, what makes happiness And, you know, the resulting full engagement seem elusive in today's workplace.
1: Yeah. First of all, Olivia, I absolutely applaud you for writing a book on love at work. There's a lot of research that talks about the importance of love in our workplace friendships, companionate love, I'm sure you know, and so that's really exciting. Maybe we'll get Thanks. back to that in a, a little while. So why is happiness elusive? First of all, most of our listeners probably have heard the Gallup statistics that tell us that upwards of two-thirds of us are either actively disengaged or neutral about work. What that means in practice is that we either don't care, kind of neutral, blase, or we're actively unhappy, disengaged, even sabotaging ourselves and others. That is totally unacceptable. As far as I'm concerned, it's totally unacceptable to live that way, given how many hours many of us work and how important work is to us. Why is that? Why are so many of us unhappy at work? I actually think it has to do with a couple of things. Number one, um, many of us have bought into industrial-era myths and mindsets about the nature of work that I don't think served us 100 years ago, and they certainly don't serve us now. For example, mm-hmm. this notion that we shouldn't look for happiness at work. We should look for happiness in life. Well, that's just ridiculous. Most of us get our identity, a big part of our identity from work. Or or this idea that work should be grueling. You know that old saying, it's work after all. What do you expect? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, yeah, work can be hard, but it also can be tremendously fulfilling. So that's part of the reason, I think, Olivia, that happiness is actually elusive in the workplace because we believe the wrong things. We've bought into oldness and mindsets that need to be banished.
0: I couldn't agree more, and when you were speaking of the industrial era, I'm reminded that back then, the CEO could pretty much take the place of any of the workers. The the workers were not perhaps highly educated or trained, and today, in industry, everybody, most workers, I believe, at least need to have computer skills. And the companies that are thriving, maybe the newer tech companies, they don't, work the models are very different people are empowered we hear remember stories about early apple employees getting massages and things like that Mm -hmm. so i think that um it is kind of the evolution of business and the fact that we are so much more high tech that's making it making ceos realize that they're going to be better off if their employees are happy because they can't replace them as easily would you agree with
1: that I would completely agree that we can't just plug-and-play employees anymore, if we ever really could. We certainly can't now, and it's for two reasons. Number one, as you say, we're in the post-industrial economy. We are in a knowledge economy um, Virtually every job requires computer skills, requires uh, deep, complex cognitive skills. We have to know how to solve problems. No longer can we kick the problem upstairs or pretend it doesn't exist. We, we simply won't survive in our jobs and our teams won't, won't succeed either if, if we do that. The other thing is the gig economy. I can pick up my toys and leave. If, yes. if I'm not happy in the workplace, if I don't feel I'm respected, if I don't feel that uh, my boss is allowing me to make the decisions I know I'm capable of, and maybe I'll go to another company or maybe I'll just start something on my own.
0: That's great. I'm just curious, do you think our education system is getting to the place where they can support kids learning
1: to do that?
0: My sense is we we need we have some catching up to do, but I'd love to know your thoughts.
1: Yeah, my colleagues at the Graduate School of Education at Penn could speak much more eloquently to this than I can, but there's no doubt that our educational model structures and processes and even the leadership models in education were designed for the last century, maybe the century before that. Mm -hmm. And we're really struggling in the United States and around the world to create new models of education that allow children and adults, by the way, to learn new things quickly, to be nimble, to not get locked into old ways of doing things, to be able to learn how to learn. And I, I don't know that our educational systems are designed to teach people to learn how to learn. They're designed to teach mm-hmm. people facts. And in today's uh, world, facts change um, because we get more information. We're constantly involving what we know.
0: Well, yeah, and we have access to all the facts, so we really need to learn how to discriminate them. I mean, that's probably the, like you were saying, having those critical thinking skills are,
1: are so paramount now. Well, thank you. That is so <laughs> true, Olivia, uh, critical thinking skills, the ability to tell the difference between uh, evidence-based information and, and ideas that just sort of come out of thin air. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is that is skillful. That is intelligent, and that's what we need today.
0: Yeah, great. So, back to more of the content of your book. How do you see happiness and engagement are linked?
1: Another good question, Olivia. Happiness engagement and engagement are are actually two slightly different ideas. Engagement's been measured by companies like Gallup and others, and many big companies have measures of engagement. And, And what they mean by that is, how in, engaged, how involved are people in their day-to-day jobs? How committed to, are they to their jobs? Are they going to be here a year from now? And do they care about the outcomes that they're charged with, uh, with achieving? Happiness is, is a bigger concept. I think engagement comes as a result of happiness and other things, but happiness is a much bigger idea. You know, Olivia, the way I came to this, you know, I've done a lot of work over the years on leadership and emotional intelligence and what it takes to be successful and looking at organizational cultures and going, you know, out into the field and talking with a lot of people in companies all over the world. And after, you know, seven or eight years of some really big studies of organizations that I and my team had done, lots of interviews, that sort of thing, I had this nagging feeling that, even though we discovered some things that were useful to these particular companies, there was something bigger that crossed boundaries, whether sector to sector, company to company, even country to country. And I went back and I looked at a lot of these interviews and studies, and what I found really surprised me, I didn't intend to look for Happiness or what makes people happy at work or engagement or any of that. But what I found was a very, very clear voice coming from people in places as different as, you know, rural South Africa in the civil service or, you know, large energy company, multinational energy company or media. People were telling us, look, I want to love my job, I want to be happy at work, I want to care, I want to be committed, I want to make a difference." And yet, I don't necessarily feel that way most of the time. And here's what would make me feel that way. And people were able to really clearly articulate it as I looked kind of thematically over all this information. I need to feel a sense of purpose. I I want to know that I can live my values at work. I want to feel valued. I want to have impact. I want to have hope about my own personal future in this job, Um, not just the organization's vision. I want to know where I'm going and does where my organization is going and where my job is going to fit with where I want to go in my life. And then finally, back to the topic you're so interested in, I want friendships at, at work. Olivia, I want to feel a sense of belonging. I want to feel loved and cared for, and I want to give those things in return.
0: Oh, that's so interesting. I'm sure you're familiar with Brene Brown's work. Um, yes. She was, you know, she was just looking through data and, and almost, well, had her own kind of healing um, because she saw a lot of the same stuff, not per particularly in the corporate world, but in our social media, that people just want a sense of belonging and connection. I mean, it just permeates everything. So it really
1: uh, that, s- supports what yes, you're saying. Olivia, that's true. Brene Brown's work is really, really stunning. And, um, and yes, yeah, she she looked at data. You know, I looked at data, and it's amazing. We human beings know what we need. If somebody mm. would just listen to us, <laughs> right? Yeah, and right. It, and if we, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, that's good. That's good to know because it speaks to, I think, having society be healthier. If, if, but like you said, we spend a lot of our time at work, and if we can feel good there, it transfers back to the home and um, the community and really culture at large. Um, so, how do you characterize your perspectives on happiness in the workplace?
1: Yeah, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, happiness at work is comprised of three really powerful elements, a sense of purpose, that what I do matters, Mm -hmm. Uh, a a feeling of hope, an experience of hope that is comprised of an optimism optimistic vision of the future that's tied to my pers- personal vision of the future, and then mm. friendships, real friendships. And it doesn't mean necessarily that we go on vacation with the people we work with or even have dinner with them, but friendships that are based on a sense of companionship, a sense of belonging. And, and what's really interesting about that one is that most workplaces now, uh, no matter where you are, are, are not, Full of people who are exactly the same, who come from the same background with the same education, same cultural background, ethnic background, gender, you name it. We're different from one another in our workplaces now. So uh, being friends with people at work, having solid, resonant relationships does not mean being exactly the same. It, Mm -hmm. it, It means finding those points of similarity, those points of human connection um he has kids i have kids we both love our kids right um i have a family you have a family or uh, you know i care about what i do you care about what you do and finding those points of commonality and bonding bonding around that while learning to be curious about one another and and really not only Experience one another's differences as something to, you know, tolerate. Not a word I like, but really celebrate sure. one another's differences, and that starts with curiosity.
0: Oh, beautiful! So we all know about the person that all they care about is money, and they think that's going to make them happy. Um, what are what are some of those traps? I think that, and maybe for some people that works, but I think in general. What we're saying is really what people want, the connection and they, and the belonging. And maybe they think by making a lot of money, that's going to get them that. But I think of those as, you know, I think you mentioned this as being traps. What, What are some of the traps that you see and perhaps other ones that might get people thinking they're moving to happiness and they really aren't?
1: Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times in my work coaching executives I've sat with someone who has more money than most of us can ever imagine (laughs) and yet (laughs) is really fundamentally unhappy at work and unhappy in life. Uh, Mm. We we all need money. Uh, There's nothing wrong with it. I've been poor personally, and anyone who's been poor or hasn't had enough to take care of daily needs or take care of our kids, you know, of course we need it. Um, But beyond a certain level, um, money becomes a symbol of something. Um, And it's usually a symbol of something that is important to us, but maybe for the wrong reasons. It becomes a proxy for power. It becomes a proxy for happiness. It becomes a proxy for fulfillment. And ultimately, Ultimately, it leaves us empty. So, you know, the pursuit of money for the sake of money is a happiness trap. It can feel great, and then you get that bonus, and that feels good for a minute, or that promotion and that raise, and it feels good right. for a minute. Three weeks later, three weeks later, that feeling's gone, and you're back to, mm-hmm. gosh, I don't really like what I'm doing. Um, I'm working too much. I never see my family, or whatever <laughs> it is that's driving you. So, that's a happiness trap, and I've seen I've seen a few, and I've 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 heard about these too from these many people that we worked with around the world. Money's a happiness trap. Oddly enough, so is ambition.
0: Sometimes interesting.
1: Yeah, yeah. Am- ambition is great in a certain way. Ambition or that drive for achievement. Really does have us seek excellence. It has us push ourselves to the edge, to do our very best, to really reach for, um, to reach for the stars. And there is not only nothing wrong with that. It's it's a wonderful thing about being human that most of us have that drive. Problem is, in many of our workplaces, we are expected to do that all the time, and we mm-hmm. can get trapped by moving from goal to goal chasing brass, brass ring after brass ring never celebrating the wins never recognizing that in fact the journey actually does matter what we learn along the way does matter and it's not the only the attainment of goals that or that promotion or that new job that Will make us happy. It's what we do along the way for and with other people and what we learn. So, ambition can be a trap, especially in some of our hyper competitive, overheated organizations where short term results are lauded over everything else. And, you know, we know now, we know for sure, even though our organizations haven't caught up with it, that a singular focus on short term goal attainment, short-term results, is a surefire way to get in the way of sustainable success individually and collectively. So those are two of the traps that I've seen that on the surface look kind of normal and good. Yeah, we need money. We work for money. It's great. Ambition Mm -hmm. is good. But when they get out of control, they can leave us feeling empty, deflated, cynical, and just Mm -hmm. fed up with work and with life.
0: Oh, that's so so sad. When you're talking to people in big companies, do you ever do they complain about the fact that most of their stock is based on short-term earnings and that they can't really strategize long-term or is that
1: changing, do you think? I think it actually is changing. I think a lot more uh, companies, boards, top leadership teams are, are recognizing a couple of things. Number one, the singular focus on short term results has people cut corners, witness Wells Fargo, mm. and um, get themselves into trouble. And uh, we could name, we could list, you know, 20 companies that have gotten themselves in serious companies by focusing on quarterly or short, other short term results. So that's number one. Mm. Number two, um, the movement to pay attention to the bigger picture—for example, the environment—is um, now 20 years um, it, part of our consciousness and. That cadre of leaders who are now stepping into the most senior roles have literally grown up with the belief that the footprint that our company leaves is an important part of our own personal legacy and will be an important part of the company's legacy as well as its ability to step into the future, if I can carry the metaphor that that far. So I do think there are changes. Unfortunately, the changes are, in my estimation, are not happening fast enough. Um, Mm -hmm. Our uh, publicly traded companies are still, their feet are held to the fire um, promises wow. that they make better be kept and they better be kept every three months or they're in trouble. Um, that said, I'm I'm seeing more and more senior leadership teams and boards say, okay, if you're going to hold my feet to the fire for the promises, that's fine, but let me talk about the promises I'm willing to make. Companies like that um, are really inspiring to the employees because they know that their leaders are looking out for the long term. So I think all of that really speaks positively to the changes that we are undergoing. It's going to take a while. It really, truly is. The other thing I'm seeing, all the way down through the organizations, from the top all the way down to first-line supervision, is that this notion that people need to believe that what they do matters has mm-hmm. finally sunk into our consciousness we we know that standing on a an assembly line and putting one piece of metal into another piece of metal is not it, it's not rewarding it's not fulfilling for for most people um, so most managers and most organizations are finding ways to ensure that people can find meaning can see how their bit fits into the larger picture the larger whole and that that's actually very encouraging too I think
0: well it's funny you say that because I remember seeing a TED talk um I think I won't say the name because I'm not sure if it was this person, but they were saying that companies are complaining about millennials because they'll leave the job if they don't feel like they're having a positive impact beyond the company. And they were saying that that was meant the millennials were spoiled. And I'm thinking, no, that's a good thing. you know. It is a good thing.
1: Yes, and I'm completely with you. A couple of things there. Um, number one, they're onto something, and my research backs it up. A sense of purpose makes us more effective. So if our companies want us to be successful individually and collectively, provide that sense of purpose. Number two, practically speaking, um, the millennial generation is the biggest and a group of employable individuals in the world. So we better stop complaining about them and start listening to them.
0: Absolutely. Oh, that's great. Um, So I'm just also curious if you're going into companies and let's say you have some senior leaders that maybe got in for the ambition and they have a high need for control uh, and, and, You're going in maybe and saying, you know, you've got to empower your people to make decisions and sort of let go of the reins a little bit. What has been your experience as far as how many leaders, and maybe even by generation, like if they're in the baby boomer era versus the millennials or somewhere in between, how well do they adapt to perhaps a different style of leadership that does use respect and and empowerment?
1: Again, another good question. You know, we're experiencing what some people call the silvering of the workforce, especially at, this, at the senior levels. You know, baby boomers are retiring um, in ever increasing numbers. And many people in that generation grew up when expectations about how you behaved at work included things like do what you're told, wait your turn, um, uh-huh. you'll get your chance later on until then, just be quiet. And, you know, that that's a fairly disempowering set of messages for most people. So many of those folks, honestly, were not all that happy throughout the uh, many years of their careers. And the smartest among them, as soon as they got into positions of power, changed that. They didn't kick down because they had been kicked. They changed it. So there Mm -hmm. are are a large number of people, I would say, in that generation and the generation just below who have been steadfastly trying to make changes because their own experiences taught them that the old models of command and control, top-down disempowerment simply did work from a very yeah. uh you know practical standpoint it's disempowering to the point that people stop doing things right so that's number uh-huh. one I think number two. We find people who have been convinced by the business case. The science is really clear. The science behind, for example, um, the kinds of competencies that we need in order to be individually and collectively successful show beyond a shadow of a doubt that competencies linked to emotional intelligence, competencies like self awareness, emotional self control, empathy, those are the competencies that make a difference when it comes to management and leadership. And this management science is just very, very clear about that, about as clear as you can get in the social sciences. Add to that the neuroscience that is just exploding on the landscape, that is helping us to understand the link between emotions, cognitions, and behavior. You know, it used to be here, i "Ah, leave your emotions at the door, that doesn't belong at work. Well, first of all, that's silly. We can't. We're human beings. We're emotional beings. We bring those emotions into the workplace. And Mm -hmm. most importantly, when we are largely in the positive register, and and I, I don't mean just sort of la la happy all the time, I mean excited and appropriately challenged and celebrating successes. Our brains work better, and when our brains work better, we make better choices. And the opposite is also true when we are frustrated, angry, cynical, scared, which, you know, too many people are at work, we shut down. We can't take in all that good data. We can't make good decisions. Uh, Our judgment is impaired, and obviously we're not very good with our colleagues either. So, yeah, uh, there's some resistance to this movement toward a more humane um, and purposeful, happy workplace. But I think the, the message that's really important is it's not just about being nice. It's about using our emotions to enhance our cognitive abilities, to enhance our abilities to behave well with each other, to create resonant relationships and to collaborate, which we need to do today.
0: Well, I'm so glad to hear you say that, and even bringing up the neuroscience, we know that when people are afraid, they go into their reptilian brain, so they can't even access the critical pattern thinking part of their brain, so that alone should appeal to people who maybe don't believe this from a heart-based point of view, Um, and the other thing is I remember reading some research that just really fascinated me where they hooked up Mike uh, electrodes to the brain the head of a manager and their employee and then they measured as the manager felt empathy for the employee and it showed that their mirror neurons synced up so we can even do this without having to really say anything I mean there's just so much power in all that Um, and the neuroscience can can speak to the people who are maybe very scientific and don't Want to think about it from a just a human uh, compassion point of view?
1: Wow, yeah, that's right. Yeah, to just to comment on that really quickly, you're so right. That study is, is excellent. I remember it, too. And you know, one of the things I often tell the managers and leaders I work with, you know, if you want to empower your people, you're not just going to show them the way or help them figure out the way on their own. You're going to model and and embody an emotional stance that mm. is literally contagious in the positive sense so that they pick up on your excitement and your enthusiasm. So your ability to be effective actually spreads like wildfire as as a result of your emotional stance.
0: Oh, that's so great to hear. So we're almost out of time. Is there anything else you want to share before we finish up?
1: Gosh, the questions have been great. And I'm really thrilled that we're having this conversation because I think the message that emotions matter at work. And they matter even more today because of the changing nature of our world, changing nature of the workforce, and we need to catch up with that. We need to learn how to use our whole self, uh, emotions, cognitions, behavior, to help ourselves be successful, fulfilled, happy, and most importantly, to help others.
0: Oh, well, thank you so much for being my guest today, and I hope you'll come back again and visit us. So... For a full description of our next show and other upcoming shows, as well as access to past shows and guest bios, please visit www.quantumbusinessinsights.com. Uh, thank you, Annie, again for being my guest today.
1: Thank and, you, Olivia. This has been a delight.
0: Oh, my pleasure. So I'm your host, Olivia Parrud, saying thank you for tuning into Quantum Business Insights and have a great week. Thank you for tuning in to Quantum Business Insights. Please join your host, Olivia Parr-Rood, again on the Voice America Business Channel. Enjoy your weekend, and we'll talk again next week.